What's behind the science and inventions that impact our daily lives? Pacific Northwest National Laboratory's pods of science are the stories of what happens before the breakthrough, before a technology becomes a household name, before the life-saving drug hits your local pharmacy shelves, before the paper is published. Here's what happens when great minds meet great challenges. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pods of Science. Pods of Science. I'm your host, Nick Hennon, and I'm here today with Brent Van Devender, a physicist at Pacific Northwest National Lab who studies neutrinos. Brent and his MIT colleagues stumbled upon a revelation about how quantum computing decoherence occurs with environmental radiation interference. All I really needed was a low-noise microwave amplifier to do my neutrino experiment. One of my colleagues, who I, who I work on that with, Joe Formaggio at MIT, approached one of his colleagues on the MIT faculty who he knew had amplifiers that might work for us. Discovery by accident in this case, like so many others, is a powerful experience. And this story reminds us how areas of science that seem disconnected can have unexpected connections. I'm Brent Van Diemener. I'm a nuclear physicist at PNNL. I'm, I'm our program manager for nuclear physics research. Hey, Brent. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. We're working today on a story about quantum computing. Yeah, yes. <laughs> There's an interesting connection between, you know, searching the heavens for dark matter and searching for the source of interference in quantum computing devices. And that was a total surprise to us, and we really discovered it quite by accident. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, this is a, a phenomenon that they have known for a long time has affected regular computing, correct? Uh, yeah, so, you know, in classical computers that are based on, on transistors, it's been known for, for a long time that, like, cosmic rays, for instance, can interact and cause, like, a bit to flip, you know, change from zero to one. That's well known, and, and electronics are actually made to be tolerant to that. And so it's, it's a known problem. It is not a huge deal, though, in classical computers. It is, it is a, a managed, dealt-with problem. And this research started from a personal connection and a conversation to solve a, a scientific mystery. Like, why are there more loose electrons causing problems in qubit devices than scientists think there should be? That's right. And it even goes back a little further than that, where, I, I, to be totally honest, I, I never cared about qubits before. I am trying to measure the mass of the neutrino, and all I really needed was a low-noise microwave amplifier to do my neutrino experiment. One of my colleagues, who I, who I work on that with, Joe Formaggio at MIT, approached one of his colleagues on the MIT faculty, who he knew had amplifiers that might work for us. They talked about the amplifiers. It was agreed, yeah, we can probably make amplifiers for you. And as like an accidental byproduct of that conversation, this guy, that's Will Oliver at MIT, tells Joe, you know, I use these amplifiers to read out qubits. The amplifiers work just fine, but you know, there's something with the qubits. They don't work as well as theory predicts they should. We, we think we know what it is. We do know what it is. There are, there are way too many what we call quasi-particles. Those are those free electrons. And, and we don't know why they're there. They're, they're, there is a good theory of how superconducting devices like these work. Um, it predicts some, you know, vanishingly small number of free electrons in a superconductor. And there are like millions of times more than that. And that's a mystery. It is not known where those come from. They exist everywhere. You know, all devices, doesn't matter who is looking, who's doing the experiment, what kind of devices, it's always there. Um, a lot of things have been ruled out. And, and, and what Will Oliver then laid on Joe is that 
one of the only things that's not definitively ruled out is that it's just like the natural radiation in the in the environment is breaking up the charge carrying pairs in superconductors and making these free electrons. And now that's fortuitous because dealing with radiation in the environment and super sensitive experiments to measure like dark matter in neutrinos is like, that's, that's what we do. We know how to deal with that and do those experiments and then control that radiation if that turns out really to be the problem. You know, some of the best scientific experiments and uh, discoveries and breakthroughs occur by accident right? I mean, in the past, we've read a lot about how this has happened sort of accidentally. And so this is no exception, is it? That's what I think. I mean, I, I was not thinking about qubits. I don't think the qubit people at MIT were thinking about, at least not deeply about neutrinos and dark matter. It was really that chance conversation. Although I, I do like to clarify, you know, it was chance. Two random people would not have made that connection. It was really two very particular kind of experts that had to meet each other. Yeah. And, and come to this conclusion and design an experiment. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. We're going to back up a little bit, and I want you to describe what a qubit is for someone who doesn't understand quantum computing. Okay, so so in a, in a classical computer, a bit, you know what a bit is, right? A yeah. Bit, a bit is, is a basically a transistor state, and it's either on or off. It's zero or one. That, that's the basic of class, basis of classical computing. And a quantum computer, a qubit, that's a quantum bit, is... It has two states, zero or one, but it has this special property that it can be in either of those states, zero or one, but it can also be in a mixture of those two states at the same time. And that's a, that's a really special property, and that's where quantum computers drive their power, whereas a classical bit has just the two states. Quantum bit really has a much larger number of states that it can represent because it can appear in that mixture of zero and one. How is quantum computing different from how we compute now? Oh, man, that's a hard question. It's, uh, it, it, it comes down to the, the, the nature of the algorithms you can execute. Fundamentally, what a classical computer does is they can look at two bits and, and decide whether they're the same or add them together or something like that. There's much more you can do with bits, quantum bits, qubits, that can be in these mixed states. And also, you can manipulate an additional property where two qubits can be entangled with each other, where, you know, the state of one bit is completely dependent on the state of one of its neighbor bits. Uh, that, that, that's a, that's a, that does not exist in classical computing. And the, the types of algorithms you can design take advantage of those additional quantum properties. That's where the power comes from. There are some calculations which a quantum computer really doesn't help you with. But there are a few algorithms that just can't be done classically, but at least in theory could be done on a quantum computer. The classic example is, uh, it's called Shor's algorithm. It can factorize huge numbers, and it's the basis of cryptography, basically. So classical cryptography has to do with encrypting your message using giant numbers that a classical computer cannot factorize within the age of the universe, whereas a quantum computer with enough qubits could do it rather quickly. Why are researchers interested in quantum computing? There are a number of things that can be done with supremacy on a, a quantum computer. Uh, some of them, so like in my field, for instance, uh, in theoretical physics, there are certain types of physics theories that are just too computationally intensive, even, even for the most powerful classical computers that exist whereas they lend themselves quite well to a powerful quantum computer. So this is things like uh, what we call field theories in particle physics. Other problems like uh, chemistry, getting a little closer to 
to practicality, solving problems in chemistry. The, the, the problems in physics, those field theory problems, require very powerful quantum computers. That, that, that is uh, quite a distant vision. But uh, with chemistry, uh, like solving for the way uh, chemical molecules bind with each other and so on, that is actually a problem that's addressable likely in the near term with quantum computers that will exist soon. This is what we call uh, NISC. That's the intermediate scale. What does that stand for? NISC. N-I-S-Q is noisy intermediate scale quantum computing. Um, likely solves very important problems in chemistry that can't be solved well classically. And I'm going to stay along that same theme, and I'm going to ask, why um, would you say that the U.S. Department of Energy is interested in quantum computing? It's because of the power of computing. It's it's the nature of scientific problems you can solve. You can solve scientific problems that you just can't solve right now. Quantum computers, uh, well, more generally, quantum information is an even broader field than just computing, will permit absolutely secure modes of communication such that two people can communicate securely with a guarantee that they're not being eavesdropped on. Uh, That's a big part of the interest. Now, when a computer is working, uh, when a quantum computer is working in the, the correct way, it's called coherence, correct? Right. And so what coherence really refers to is, is when you put one of those qubits into a state, either zero or one or whatever mixture you want it to be in, uh, coherence refers to how long it will stay in that state. Like how long do you actually have to do a computation with that qubit? Um, the opposite of that would be decoherence, where because of some unintended interaction with the environment, like through a, a, a you know radiation, say, it breaks that coherence and it forces the qubit into either just the zero or the one state, which may not be the state you intended and is certainly not the, a mixed state if that's what you intended. Understood. How does that happen where the natural radiation then interferes? There are a lot of ways coherence can be broken. The particular one we discovered was from radiation from the environment. So radiation from the environment is like you know, cosmic rays, natural radioactivity and materials. Um, and, and, and I would like to emphasize this is totally natural. This is not like contamination, pollution. You know, this is the same radiation that cavemen were exposed to. But that radiation is really everywhere in the environment at a low level. Some of it is highly penetrating. So it gets through shields. It can get into your quantum computer and interact in the device itself. It puts energy in that device and that energy is enough to break up these loosely bound pairs of electrons that, that carry the, the currents in the superconducting circuit elements. So does this happen through frequency or through waves? Okay, so the, the radiation, there, there are some particle types and some that are better thought of as waves. There are, like, for instance, cosmic rays mostly consists of a, a charged particle called a muon that just blows right through everything, depositing energy all along as it goes. The natural radioactivity in materials like concrete is gamma rays. So gamma rays is like high energy light uh, that Mm -hmm. tends to penetrate very deeply and then interact just in one spot in a device. Uh, That is better thought of as waves. X-rays are are, are another kind of high energy light that does the same thing. And how exactly did you find out that this was the source of the interference? So in that original conversation with Will Oliver, he already had the hypothesis that this was the source. What we had to do, though, was design a carefully controlled experiment. And so we took some quantum devices, some qubits that Will Oliver has in his lab. We operated them like normal with one major exception. We took a small piece of copper and activated it to make it radioactive in the research reactor at MIT and placed that inside the refrigerator with with the devices such that we could irradiate them. 
And what we did was we operated the qubits like normal and, and, and measured their properties as this radioactive copper decayed away over the course of a few days. And so we started an experiment with elevated radiation. And over the course of a few days, it, it, that radiation decayed back to like natural ambient radiation levels. And we were able to see the devices. Initially, they were almost dysfunctional. They, they, they barely worked. And then they slowly came back to normal. It's fascinating. How did uh, PNNL get involved with the MIT research team? Remember that originally I was really just trying to measure the mass of the neutrino. I was connected through that research to Joe Formaggio at MIT. And the connection then was from Joe to Will Oliver, who's on the faculty at MIT with him. So Will Oliver is a quantum computing expert. Uh, Joe is my neutrino physics colleague. And the research question you were trying to answer then again was what was what was causing the interference? That's right. So so after that initial conversation, we realized we we could together design an experiment to to either prove or disprove that hypothesis about the radiation being the cause, which is what we did. What would you say are the implications of your study results for quantum computing and for the search of dark matter? Well, so for for quantum computing, there are a number of technologies being developed that are that are vying to be the bits, the quantum bits or qubits in a quantum computer. These superconducting devices we studied are one of the leading candidates. If these are to be the qubits in a quantum computer, it implies that, that a quantum computer will have to be shielded from radiation, um, possibly even taken at least somewhat underground to get away from cosmic rays. We were able to actually put a limit on uh, coherence. So, so coherence is measured in units of time. How long does a, the state remain in the state you're prepared in? Current state-of-the-art qubits have a coherence time of around 100 microseconds. What we found out was that if you solved the current limits on Q- on coherence, which are, are not actually caused by this radiation, but if you were able to take all of those causes away, you would hit a new limit set by radiation of a few milliseconds. So microseconds are millionths of a second, milliseconds are thousandths of a second. And so what we found is that the coherence time will be limited to about four milliseconds if you don't take precautions against this radiation. That uh-huh. is not long enough for a general purpose quantum computing. It needs to be longer than a few milliseconds. And what are the implications for the search of dark matter with this? So as it turns out, uh, a, a, a qubit device is very similar to a very sensitive radiation detection device. I mean, in fact, this is literally what we did is we showed that these devices are directly sensitive to radiation. In the search for dark matter, we, we don't know what it is but there are a few hypotheses about how it might interact with matter. They're all very weak. And so you need a detector that is sensitive to a very small signal size. Uh, and because those interactions are weak, they won't happen very often. So you also need a detector that is very radio pure. So it has to be also shielded from environmental radiation. And so as it turns out, the, the, these problems are, are, are closely related to each other. And uh, we are sure that understanding the underlying physics the details of the physics of how this radiation ultimately breaks up the Cooper pairs in a qubit device will lead to more sensitive detectors. In the case of a qubit, these broken pairs are a nuisance. You want to avoid them. In the case of a dark matter detector, those broken pairs are actually your information carrier. That's, that's what records the information about radiation that you want. And either way, it comes down to understanding the details of those interactions. What place did the shallow underground laboratory play in your research? 
So far, none. Uh, we have not used that yet. That that is a that's our forward looking vision for how to follow up this work. The the experiment itself was done in in a lab at MIT. So so uh, doing an experiment with qubits is is a highly specialized thing that that they are set up to do that that we are not yet. And so we did it in an ordinary laboratory. It's on the ground floor of a five-story concrete building, which actually matters, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, and we did it there. We, we, we exposed the qubits to elevated radiation. And I forgot to mention that in a different experiment, to follow that up, we built a lead shield around the qubits and show that the coherence time actually goes up a little bit. Where the shallow underground laboratory hopefully comes in is you can shield quite effectively against the, the gamma radiation that comes from like uh, uh, natural radioactivity in the concrete. It's much harder to shield against cosmic rays. It is likely that while you could just build a lead shield around your quantum computer on the surface to get rid of the gamma radiations from natural radioactivity, you have to go underground to get away from cosmic rays. And so, and so we believe the next phase of this research should go into our shallow underground laboratory or something like it. Okay, so that's kind of what's next for you and some of the areas that you're exploring in the future. That's right. And so we, we do have a project looking into uh, you know, just the logistics of establishing a capability in our underground laboratory, which is itself a, a major undertaking. That space is very crowded with very high impact research, and it's also very clean. All of the space down there is, is very high-grade clean room. Makes a lot of restrictions on what you can do down there so that you don't interfere with that other research, but it's actually not really required for, for this quantum research. This research doesn't have to be as clean as that other research. When you think about ways to keep a quantum computer in coherence, working properly, are there other ways other than being underground to protect it? Is there any type of natural material or material otherwise that would be able to sort of wrap around an environment to keep a quantum computer from slipping into decoherence? Yeah, okay, so th there's a couple of ways to address this problem. One of the ways is shielding. Build a lead okay. cave around it, take it underground. Other things you can do, uh, once we understand the details of the interaction better, it is likely that we can just design devices which are more immune to the effects. This is already done at some level with, with other material effects, which lead to decoherence through improved device design. You can just make the qubits less susceptible to them. So, so, so it's really a, a two-part solution. Is there anything I haven't mentioned that you think is important to this research? No, I, I, I do like to emphasize, though, that the, the, we, we, we talked about this being fortuitous and accidental. It's really a good example of how two different sets of experts can come together and, and solve a, a really new problem that neither of them alone knew how to solve. It's probably the most fun I've had doing an experiment in a long time for, for, for that reason. You know, I knew almost nothing about quantum information in qubits when I got into this. And, it, and it's, this will surely have changed the, the arc of my research career, I think, having, having been involved in this now. What would you say made it so fun? Just all the new things I had to learn, all the new things our, our colleagues had to learn. You know, we, we would have funny conversations uh, that, that just showed the disparity between our expertise where <laughs> we deal with high energy radiation. Our, our units are called electron volts. We measure things in like at least thousands, if not millions of electron volts. And those guys talk about high energy as being like thousandths of an electron volt. It's like, wow, that's a, that's a really big uh, gap to close <laughs> in, those, in the way we conceive of the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs>
Were there any surprising things that you learned uh, outside of that that were uh, sort of new to you? I mean, the whole field of quantum information was new and surprising to me. I, I had not thought very deeply about it be- before I got into this. Um, I guess one of the things I learned is that this problem of the of the broken Cooper pairs is completely generic to, to all superconductors. It's been well known for a long time that the theory of superconductivity doesn't explain the observed numbers of broken pairs. I mean, in retrospect, having done the experiment, it seems obvious, but I guess it was not obvious at all because that's been hanging out there for decades. So interesting. And your world, again, describe what you do. Obviously, it's a lot different from this, but your search for dark matter, can you describe it in layman's terms to some extent? Sure. So so the, most of the matter in the universe is is not the normal stuff that we're made of. It's not atoms. It's not you know stars, planets, gas, and dust. It is some kind of dark matter. There is five times more of that than there is of the normal matter. We know it's there because we see its gravitational effects. We can see it in the way galaxies rotate. You can, you can see its effects when galaxies collide with each other. But that's all we know. The, the evidence is all implicit. What we really want to do is know the, the, the physical nature of that stuff. And so the idea is to directly detect it in the lab. So our galaxy is not special. We also live in a halo of this dark matter. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's right here with us. And so we build experiments to hope that we can have a rare interaction between a presumably particle of dark matter would interact with either a nucleus or an electron in our detectors. It's fascinating. I imagine that a lot of interest in your work, is it uh, sometimes difficult to describe, say, to school children or younger people that are just understanding science? Um, you know, I find people have a pretty intuitive grasp for that, actually. That's great. It's really surprising to a lot of people to to be told that most of the matter is is not normal stuff. I think the thing that really gets people is that it's not just like out there in the cosmos. I mean, it's right here. It's It's in the room with you. It's everywhere. Well, that is going to do it for this edition. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time for another edition of Pods of Science.